again, or if you're a visitor, great to see you all this morning. You should have an outline on your seat, and it's on the back of the bulletin, and it's got the various verses that we're going to be looking at um, this morning. If we can have the first slide up, John, that'll be great. Um, thanks. And uh, we're looking at this morning at Acts, carrying on our studies in the, in the book of Acts, and uh, all the verses are there for you on the back of the sheet, and there's some things for you to fill in as well if you find that helpful. Now, when we go on family holidays together, I, I'm a bit of a nerd. I like to research the whole area and find out if there's some historical sites to go and visit, much to my family's delight. And uh, this, year we were, uh, or this year, we're going to a little village in Cumbria called Crosby Garrett. This is Crosby Garrett. I haven't stayed there since I was 10. We used to have lots of our family holidays there. Even before I was born, my parents and my older brothers used to go there. And Crosby is a really sleepy little village, as you can, as you can see. Not much happens there. Except the discovery in 2010 of something called the Crosby Garrett Helmet. It's a 2,000-year-old Roman artifact. And this was discovered on a friend's farm, a, a family that we've known for, for many years. Uh, the, current farmer's grand, uh, the current father's father was my granddad's uh, best friend, or one of my granddad's best friends. And this was found on his farm. So I'm hoping that this summer... I might get a little bit of time to go wandering around Crosby Garrett in a few of the fields and maybe even find something for myself. How cool would that be? Uh, if I find something like this, this is sold for about two and a half million pounds, so you might not see me again, but um, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Probably for you, if I didn't see me again, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Back in 2009, we had a family holiday in Turkey in a place called Fethiye, and before I went, I did my usual research uh, you know, what was there, what was interesting to find there historically, and especially to look at if, if there were any biblical historical sites, because I knew that Turkey was a place that the Apostle Paul and lots of the early church, if we read in the Bible, lots of the stuff that's uh, talked about is actually took, takes place in what is modern-day Turkey. But to my disappointment, uh, I, I found that although there were some Roman sites in Fethiye, there's a Roman amphitheater, and I did drag the family there. There was a Crusader castle, which I dragged the family in 44 degrees heat. We almost nearly passed out. It was very hot. But I couldn't find anything biblical, so I was a bit disappointed by that. It's a shame. I couldn't find any links to, to Paul or any other characters in the New Testament, until this week, that was. As I was studying the passage that we're going to look at this morning... I discovered that I'd overlooked something glaringly obvious. Paul actually visited a place called Patara, which is just a few miles from Fethiye. And we could have easily visited there. This is Patara, just a few miles down the coast from where we were staying for two weeks. I was really gutted that I'd missed this. This was a, probably the only time I'd ever been in Turkey in my life, and we were just a few miles away from there. Paul apparently changed ships in Patara. He was on his way from Ephesus or, or Miletus in western, sort of northwest Turkey. He's on his way to Jerusalem, uh, and he was uh, on this th- his third missionary journey. He'd been traveling all over what is now modern-day Turkey and Greece, Preaching, teaching, planting churches, leading people to faith in Jesus. And now he was on his way back to Jerusalem. He was taking a financial gift from the churches in in, in what is now Greece and and Turkey and so on, back down to the church in Jerusalem, to the Christians in Jerusalem, who were really struggling with poverty at that time. This is a map of his journey. And uh, you can see, so he was coming from, uh, where are we? It's gone again. There we go. So he was coming from here, from Miletus. That's where we're... We're, we're picking up the story, and he sailed down here, and he changed ship in Patara, and I wish we were just staying just a little bit up from there, and then he sails down to Tyre, which is in modern-day Lebanon, and then goes, makes his way on to Jerusalem. And the last time that we looked at Acts was last summer. Ian Galloway was here when we, we parked our studies in Acts, and we were looking at the account of when Paul met with the elders from the church in Ephesus, 
and uh, he encourages them and he warns them and he gives them some teaching about what, what to do as elders and, and, and prepare for the future and so on. And the Holy Spirit had been leading Paul to return to Jerusalem with the eventual aim for Paul of going on to visit Rome. Look at Acts 19.21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And then when, when Paul met with the, the uh, elders in Ephesus, or from Ephesus rather, we get this real sense of how the Holy Spirit was leading him and guiding him to go to Jerusalem. Paul says to the elders in uh, Acts 20, he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul says that it was the Holy Spirit that was compelling him or moving him or urging him to go to Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit was also warning him how difficult it was going to be. God had given Paul this amazing task of taking the good news about Jesus, the fact that Jesus had come from heaven, become a human being, God in in human form, and had gone to the cross there on Calvary, had died there, was crucified there, and as he was crucified there, he was uh, taking all the punishment for all the sins that you and I have committed, all our foul-ups, all our mistakes, all our mess-ups, and Jesus took all the wrath of a holy God so that we wouldn't need to face that if we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And and by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, we get to be forgiven, we get to be given his righteousness, his perfection, and we get this wonderful relationship with God and we get the promise of eternal life. And that package of information, what we call the gospel, the good news, was what God had given to Paul. He'd given him the task of taking that news, testifying to it, and taking that news all over the Roman Empire even if it cost him his life. And Paul was determined to finish that task. Paul was determined to do all he could within his life to make sure as many people across the Roman Empire heard that good news and responded to it, even if it would cost him his life. Paul said that he considered his life worth nothing. His only aim was to do what Jesus had asked him to do, even if that meant death. What a statement. What an attitude. As I read these verses this week, I was kind of studying and preparing, I was hugely challenged by them. Am I more concerned with my life, with my comforts, my ambitions, my health, or am I willing to lay those things down, willing to lay those things aside so that I can serve God with all my heart? And am I willing to lay those things down so that I can do all that I can within my power to tell others about Jesus and to try and help other people tell others about Jesus? What is it that matters most to me? I've been really challenged this week as I've, as I've kind of studied these verses. You've got Paul's example, devoted to Jesus. Jesus had paid it all on the cross for Paul, as he has for me, as he has for you. And in response to that, it drove Paul, it, it, it compelled Paul to give his life for this cause of telling the good news about Jesus to everybody. And I've been really challenged about that. Is is that how I would describe my life? Is that a description of my life? Is, Is that what I would be willing to say? What about you today? Where does living for God and serving God fit into your priorities? Is it just when it's convenient? Is it just Sunday mornings? Or are you prepared to sacrifice 
to lay down your time, your ambitions, your, your money, your career, maybe even your life for Jesus. You see, God wants us to be devoted to him. Write this down. God wants us to be devoted to him and devoted to spreading the good news about Jesus. God wants us to be devoted to him. Not kind of half-hearted, lukewarm, you know, I'll kind of I'll speak to Jesus when, it's, when it suits me, or I'll just turn up at church occasionally, but to be devoted to him, and devoted to spreading this good news about Jesus, so that it's life-consuming. Now, we're not all called to do what Paul did. We're not all called to go around all over Europe, or the equivalent today, and do what Paul did, but we are called to be devoted to God. So the calling on our life is the same as Paul's, to be devoted to God and devoted to spreading the good news. Where we do that and what that looks like for each of us will be different. God may be calling you this morning to go abroad like Paul and to be a missionary. And if you're sensing God's call on your life, then then come and share that with us as elders because we'd love to pray into that with you and, and help you in that process. Or he may be calling you to be a housewife and to be a great mum to your kids. Regardless of whether we find ourselves in a foreign country or at the school gate on a Monday morning or in an office or in our classroom at school or college or wherever it might be, wherever we are, the calling from God is the same. Devotion to God and devotion to spreading this good news. It's the same for all of us regardless of where we are. Our careers are not primarily about our careers. They are tools, they are vehicles for us to be able to to love God and love others through our careers. When we're at work, we're not there to be furthering our careers. We're there to tell others about Jesus and to work as if we're working for Jesus. Wherever you are, you're there for a reason. You know, you're not there by accident. God planned before he even created the world that you'd be here this morning. God planned that you'd be living in your house, in your street, in your family. He, would, he planned where you'd be in your job or in, in which class you're in at school. He planned that for a reason. And part of that big reason is that you would share the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection with those around you. Paul could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I wonder if we're ashamed of the gospel. We, we, we just, you know, well, that's Sunday. I don't mix that with my work life. I don't mix that with whatever else happens. Are we, are we, do, we, do we hide it or are we unashamed of the gospel, taking every opportunity? I know we have to be careful and wise and all that, absolutely. But God has put us in the places he's put us in for a reason. And part of that reason is to take every opportunity, to seize those moments, to spread the good news. But no, we have to be intentional. It's not going to happen by accident. Paul didn't just kind of travel around Europe aimlessly and, and oh, I'll, I'll share the, new, the good news today. He planned and he was intentional and we need to do the same. It won't happen by accident. We need to, to build relationships with those around us who don't know Jesus. We need to look for and pray for opportunities and we need to take those opportunities to tell people about Jesus. So I want to encourage you right now just to, just to pause and take a few moments and, and to write down the name of two people that God has put in your life. And I want you just to, to, to pause and think, who are the first two names that come into my head this morning? Take a few moments and write those names down. Writing stuff down is so powerful because it, 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 it helps us focus. It helps us kind of reinforce what we're doing, what we're thinking. It doesn't just stay as a concept out here somewhere. It becomes something more tangible and, and, and real. So I want to encourage you right now in this moment to just, you know, just, just as you open yourself up to God and the Holy Spirit... Who are those names that the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart this morning? 
It might be the guy in your office. It might be the person in your class at school. It might be, your, it might be the lady at the school gate. To write down those names. You've got an outline there. You've got space to put that in. To write down those people. Because if we don't write this stuff down, if we, don't, if, if we don't think about this, we won't be intentional and we'll never get around to it. It stays as a vague concept that we just never quite do. Yeah, we agree. Yeah, we should be sharing the gospel. But, but, but who with? And writing names down and being specific. And then what I'd encourage you to do is, is if you're not already doing this, I'm sure many of you are, begin to pray for those people. Pray for them every day. That God would give you opportunities today, this week, to share the good news with them, to invite them to church. Because their eternal destiny is at stake. I want to challenge you to pray for them and to be intentional about building your relationship with them. If you're a guy this week, I hope you're going on Saturday on the men's walk and I hope you've got somebody that you're inviting to that men's walk. That should be our default. Sometimes we can't do stuff, that's fair enough. But it should be our default. Here's an opportunity, who am I, who am I seeking to reach, who am I going to bring? Serving God, whether in general or specifically, and in specifically in, in spreading the the good news, the gospel, can often be really costly for us. It might mean financial sacrifices. It might mean losing friendships. It might cost us family relationships. It, it might cost us our health. It might even cost us our very life. Paul knew it was going to mean prison and hardships. And eventually for Paul it meant death. It's not recorded in the Bible, but we know from church history that Paul was beheaded by Nero after the end of the book of Acts. And so what we're going to do now is just read today's passage, which is Luke's account. Luke is the guy who's writing Acts. Uh, at various times he's with Paul, and he talks in that way. He says, we went here, we went there, and so on. We're going to read Luke's account of Paul's journey from uh, Miletus as he says goodbye to the, the elders of the church in Ephesus and as he heads to Jerusalem. So if you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me to Acts 21. We're going to read Acts 21 from verse 1 down to verse, and, and including verse 17. So Paul is just... He said goodbye and this big emotional uh, goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. And then the group, Paul's group, Luke, Paul and and, and others are heading off to Jerusalem. So uh, Acts 21 says this. After we had torn ourselves away from them, that's the, the folks from Ephesus, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt. And we'll hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name 
of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we went to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. But despite the fact that the Holy Spirit had told Paul that he, that he was to go to Jerusalem, he compelled him and urged him to go to Jerusalem, and had even warned him about the hardships that he would suffer, Paul faced opposition to that plan from those around him. Look at verse 3. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Seems that the Holy Spirit had made some of the believers in the church in Tyre aware through prophecies and words of knowledge what was going to happen to Paul. And as a result, they began to try to dissuade him not to go to Jerusalem. And the same thing happened later when a guy called Agabus turns up and he acts out this prophecy that the Holy Spirit has given to him. Luke says this, when we heard this, that's Agabus's prophecy, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. They were really well-meaning. They had Paul's best interests at heart. The last thing they wanted to see was Paul put in danger, Paul being in prison, Paul suffering in some way. It's a totally natural, understandable response. But actually, they were going against the plan that God had for Paul. They were obviously really upset. They were crying. And as as they pleaded with Paul, this really got to him. Look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. They were well-meaning, but they were wrong. And they risked diverting Paul from the very path that God had planned for him. And you know, sometimes that can happen to us in life. It it may be that a friend of ours shares a plan to serve God in some way or other, or shares a plan perhaps to make a significant change in their life, to really get serious about following Jesus and, and to make some substantial changes, which might be costly and it might entail sacrifice for them. And sometimes our response can be to try to dissuade them from taking those kind of steps. We might be well-meaning, but if we're not careful, we can get in God's way. We need to be really, really careful that we don't try to stop our brothers, our sisters from stepping out and living the way that God is calling them to, even if it might seem risky and costly to us. It may be this morning that you find yourself in a situation a bit like Paul's. You stepped out to serve God, you've you've sensed the Holy Spirit calling you to, to make a a uh, step out for God maybe just in a very small thing or maybe in a very big thing. But not everybody around you is very happy about it. Maybe your friends or your family are trying to put you off or dissuade you. You know, sometimes those who cause the greatest obstacles to Christians stepping out and stepping up in following Jesus are actually other Christians. Sadly, the, the very people that can get in the way most of, of Christians really getting serious about their faith and responding to, to God's call on their life can be other Christians, often being well-meaning. And, and it's something we need to be really careful of. And those of us who are parents, it's something we need to be really careful of. If God may be putting a call on the, ch- on the lives of our children to do all sorts of things for him, it might mean they go abroad. And we need to let them go. We need to give them to God. They're not ours. And, and sadly, sometimes parents can get in the way because they want their kids to get a nice degree and get a nice good job and a nice house and nothing wrong with any of those things. But if, sometimes if God calls us to do something different, as parents, we need to be willing to let them go. 
and mustn't get in the way of when the Holy Spirit is calling and moving in other people's lives. If God is calling you to do something for him today, then yes, by all means, listen to wise uh, and godly advice from other Christians, for sure. But ultimately, if God is calling you, then you need to be obedient. Even if that means stepping out and doing things that other people think are unwise, or even if they think you're a little bit mad. So, so write that on your outline. I need to do what God is calling me to do. And this morning, I guess the question I would ask you is this for you to think about. What is it that God is calling you to do? Maybe something very, very small, just a very sort of tiny step in your life, a little change here, there. Or it may be something massive like going abroad and, and anything in between. I don't know. I need to do what God is calling me to do. What is it that God is calling you to do? Whatever it is, then can I encourage you, for your sake, to do it? To be bold, to take God seriously, to take him at his word, and to do the very thing that he's calling you to do. Those around Paul tried to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem, and and we can understand why. At first glance, it seems as if they were right and Paul was wrong. But if that was true, then it seems that there's a conflict in what God is saying. He seems to be saying one thing to Paul. We get these verses telling Paul that the Holy Spirit's telling him to go. And then on the other hand, the Holy Spirit seems to be saying something different to those around Paul. If you look back at Acts uh, 19.21, we read that Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then in Acts 21.22, Paul says, And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit had been speaking directly to Paul that he was to go to Jerusalem that he was going to face prison, he was going to face hardships. But then we read these two occasions where, at first glance, it seems as if the Holy Spirit is actually saying the complete opposite. It's saying something different to him. In Acts 21, verse 4, we read this. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And then we get this situation where this man called Agabus turns up, who Luke says was a prophet. And in verse 10, it says this. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. Now, it wouldn't have been a leather belt like this. It would have been a big, long piece of material, which would have been whapped and sort of wound around his waist, which he'd have carried money in and possessions and so on. So not trying to tie himself up with a little leather belt. This is a big, long bit of material. So it says this. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So was the Holy Spirit contradicting himself here? Well, no, I don't think that's what's happening here because the Holy Spirit can't contradict himself. Agabus doesn't say that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. He just tells him what the Holy Spirit had said would happen when he actually got there. So this, isn't a predict- this is a prediction, it's not a prohibition. This isn't a prohibition from the Holy Spirit, this is just a prediction. And in actual fact, the prophecy that Agabus acts out only confirms what the Holy Spirit had already been saying to Paul. He would face prison and he would face hardships and as we a little bit later on we're going to look at we'll see that actually prophecies like this are a help and an encouragement and a blessing because when we're when we're stepping out and when we're we're going through difficult times it's good to look back on those prophecies that we think actually this is a really tough time right now but it shouldn't come as a shock to me because the Holy Spirit has already warned me that this is going to happen so I'm ready for it And if we go back to verse 4, I think the same thing is happening there as well. It seems that like Agabus, some of the believers in the church in in the uh, church in Tyre had the gift or the New Testament gift of prophecy. And the Holy Spirit had also shown them that Paul was going to suffer in Jerusalem. And in response to what the Holy Spirit had shown them, they then add their own emotional response, which was to understandably try to persuade Paul not to go. 
they were the ones saying not to go, not the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit wasn't saying don't go, but the Holy Spirit had shown them what was going to happen. And then they kind of add this uh, emotional level of response, which is understandable, and they plead with Paul not to go. The prophecies that this group of people and Agabus received were from the Holy Spirit. It was just that they added their own emotionally driven conclusions to the prophecies. So I thought it'd be good this morning just to look at briefly what is the gift of prophecy in the New Testament to help us perhaps try and understand what's going on here and actually apply this and land this a little bit in local church life. Did the New Testament gift of prophecy, did it, uh, was there something that just happened in the New Testament era? Did it end when the Bible was completed or when the apostles died? Some, some Christians believe that. Sh- should we still expect people today to have the gift of prophecy and to be prophesying and, and giving messages from the Holy Spirit to other people around them? Well, our position as elders is that the gift of prophecy, along with all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, is for today. They didn't cease at the end of the New Testament era. Now, I can't deal with the whole subject this morning, and I'm more than happy to chat with you afterwards if anybody wants to kind of look at it in more detail. But what I want to do briefly in the time remaining is just look very quickly at what the New Testament teaches about the New Testament gift of prophecy and how we should approach it. So here's a very uh, simple definition of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. Prophecy is this. Prophecy is reporting something that the Holy Spirit brings to mind, but with merely human words. We pass it on with merely human words. Prophecy is reporting something that the Holy Spirit brings to our mind, but with merely human words. The Holy Spirit places a a thought, an idea, a concept, a message, a picture in a person's mind. It's come from God, it's from the Holy Spirit, and so we need to give serious attention to it. However, when the person then goes on to report what God has brought to their mind, they're not using God's words, they're using merely their own words. So the New Testament gift of prophecy is not the same as Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy was the very word of God and it became part of the the canon of scripture, the, the, the word of God, which is complete and is finished. New Testament prophecy is a different gift. It is merely human words conveying something from the mind of the one prophesying to those who are listening. But the one who's placed that thought, that idea, that message, that concept, that picture in that person's mind is none other than the Holy Spirit. And so we need to pay serious attention to it. So because prophecy or or New Testament prophecy is not the same as the actual word of God, we're not adding to the word of God here. And because those with the gift of prophecy are imperfect people, that's you and me, we're imperfect people, the New Testament, because of this, gives us a number of guidelines for dealing with uh, prophecies and the gift of prophecy. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Just like all the other gifts the Holy Spirit gives us, it's limited, not by the giver of the gift, it's limited by us, by our own imperfections. The message or the picture from God is perfect, but because the person receiving the message or the picture is imperfect, they may not hear it correctly or they may not convey it accurately. It's God speaking through imperfect people. We prophesy in part, says Paul, and so we have to test it. and, And we see that in the case of Agabus. The Holy Spirit gave Agabus a picture which Agabus acted out by tying himself up with Paul's belt. This would have been this this long piece of cloth around Paul's waist. But as Agabus relayed what the Holy Spirit had showed him, he he demonstrated that he was an imperfect messenger. He got the picture right, but then when he summed up some of the details, the details were wrong. 
Agabus said that it was the Jews who would bind Paul up, and it was the Jews who would hand him over to the Romans. But if, if you look at Acts 21 and 22, and we're going to do this in future weeks, you see that what actually happened was that it was the Romans who rescued Paul from the Jews, and it was the Romans who bound him up, not the Jews at all. So Agabus saw a picture from the Holy Spirit in his mind, but as with all humans, he was an imperfect messenger, and so he relayed some of the detail incorrectly. He, he acted out the picture accurately, but as he began to kind of apply it, he got some of the details wrong. And, and that's why in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, Paul says that in church meetings, he says two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Paul sets an, a maximum of three prophets delivering prophecies in, a, in one church meeting, and then he states that the church should weigh carefully what is said. And we should do that partly by comparing it to the Bible, because prophecy will never contradict what the Bible already teaches. And if it does, then we should dismiss it. Paul received this prophetic picture from Agabus, but although those with Paul saw it as a warning not to go, Paul rightly understood it differently. He understood it as a confirmation of what the Holy Spirit had already told him. And that's why we need to weigh up the contents of a prophecy. We need to to view the prophecy in the light of Scripture, but also in, in, in the light of what we've already heard from God, that we might draw the right conclusion. And then having weighed up that prophecy, there might be all sorts of different ways where we kind of weigh it up and think it through. We need to make a decision as to what we do with that information. And whilst Paul doesn't explicitly say so, I would suggest that the final decision on what's done with the prophecy should action need to be taken, should rest with the elders of the local church. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says this, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. So we mustn't treat prophecies with contempt. We take them very seriously. Otherwise, we risk putting out the Holy Spirit's fire, that the Holy Spirit's work in the local church, Paul says. We mustn't dismiss these things. Some people dismiss the whole concept of prophecy because they've heard of or they've seen some real abuses around the gift of prophecy or because they've they've seen some wacky things happening at the same time. I've seen some real abuses of the gift of prophecy and I've had some prophecies given to me about my life which have been absolute nonsense. But just because the gift is sometimes misused or abused sometimes handled wrongly or badly, it doesn't mean that the gift itself is wrong. We mustn't shut the baby out with the bathwater. Teaching the Bible, the Bible says, is, an, is also a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that the Holy Spirit gives to some people and not to others. Now, I've heard some terrible Bible teaching. I've seen and heard the gift of Bible teaching badly abused and misused. But that doesn't mean that the gift of Bible teaching is wrong in itself. It just means we need to take great care and make sure that it's done properly. The same is true of prophecy. Just because it's sometimes done wrongly doesn't mean the gift is wrong. It just means we need to work harder on making sure we apply it and and use it biblically. So we mustn't treat prophecies with contempt. It's possibly true that in churches of our background, we've been guilty of that. We've we've just laughed and, and, and brushed stuff off. We mustn't do that, says Paul. We mustn't treat prophecies with contempt. But we must test everything. Every word we hear when a prophecy is delivered must be tested. It must be weighed. We hold on to what is good. So we hold on to that. But because the prophet, Paul says, is is merely using his own words to relay something that God has brought to mind, he or she might get some things wrong. So we need to weigh up what's said. Or or worse still, it's always possible that that the person could be a false prophet. So every word needs to be tested. Just because somebody comes up to you and says, I've got a prophecy for you, 
we shouldn't just take everything at face value. We need to be discerning. We need to weigh these things up. They need to be tested, need to be evaluated against what the Bible teaches. And that's why we need to be really careful too. If we have that gift or we feel God has spoken to us for somebody else, that we don't just rush up and, because that could be really quite damaging. We need to be careful and perhaps weigh ourselves up before we speak. Am I really hearing from God? Perhaps chat with uh, other mature Christians or come and chat to ourselves as elders. We, We need to evaluate, we need to weigh up and compare to what the Bible teaches. John says this in 1 John 4 verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we mustn't treat prophecies with contempt, but neither should we just accept blithely everything we hear. Not everything claiming to be from the Holy Spirit will actually be from the Holy Spirit. That's John's point here. So what does this mean for us today? Well, as I've said, as elders, we believe the the New Testament gift of prophecy is for us today. But we need to ensure that when prophecies are given, that they're handled in a biblical way. And the New Testament gives us some really clear instructions on how to do that, which we've just been looking at briefly this morning. Paul says this, he says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Then he goes on to say, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Prophecy is a gift that we should eagerly desire. Not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And and please as well, don't misunderstand me. If if someone has the gift of prophecy, it doesn't make them better than anybody else. All the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives are, are what are called gifts of grace. In other words, they're not earned or deserved. God just gives them in his wisdom. But the fact that I have a gift and you don't, or vice versa, doesn't make us any better or worse in God's eyes. That's complete nonsense. Prophecy is a gift that we should eagerly desire, not for our own benefit. Not for me to say, hey, look, I'm I'm a prophet and and, and I can prophesy. That's nonsense. We receive it if we receive it for the benefit of others. Prophecies are intended to help, to strengthen, to encourage and comfort people. And if and when we use the gift of prophecy in this way, Paul says, then we're following the way of love. So it may be that you have the gift of prophecy. If you do, then can I encourage you to use that gift? Now you need to be careful, you need to be cautious and make sure that you're really hearing from God and not just the, late, the first thing that's popped into your head. But if the Holy Spirit speaks to you or he gives you a picture, then you need to pass that on. But can I ask that in this church, you bring that prophecy to one of the elders first and we can help weigh in that and just weigh that up before we go any further. It, it, it may be that you sense that the Holy Spirit has given you this gift, but you're not really sure. Can I encourage you to pray and to seek God? Eagerly desire the gift of prophecies, Paul says. And, and also come and talk to us as elders so that we can help you explore perhaps whether you have that gift and, and pray for you in that. And if you find yourself maybe on the receiving end of a prophecy or a prophetic picture like, like Paul did, don't treat it with contempt. Don't just laugh at it. Don't dismiss it. Take it seriously. But weigh it up. And again, I'd encourage you to come and share that with us as elders and, and, and we can help weigh that up with you and pray through what God might or might not be saying to you. God wants us, like Paul, to be devoted to him and devoted to spreading the good news about Jesus. But we need to be ready to count the cost because living for Jesus can often be really costly. If God is calling you to do something specific for him, then can I encourage you to do what he is calling you to do, even though it might be costly? And others may try to discourage you from doing it. And as we seek to live a life devoted to serving Jesus, then let's make sure that we're open to the Holy Spirit. 
speaking to us, whether directly to ourselves, through, through, through scripture, through uh, others, through prophecies, whatever that might be, so that we can receive prophetic words to strengthen us, to encourage us and comfort us. Following Jesus can often be difficult, whether in, in whatever setting we're in. And having those prophetic words that come along and encourage us and just say those right words when we need to hear them can make such a difference. It enables us, like Paul, to keep going, to keep going to the end, to pressing on, despite the fact that what we're pressing on into might be difficult and might be hard. I was in a church some years ago now, not here, but another church, one Sunday morning. I was a visitor there. Hardly anyone knew me, and no one certainly knew my situation. But I was facing a really difficult situation in my life, really tough moment. And I was, if I was, if I'm quite honest with you, kind of in two minds, I don't know if I can do this. This is difficult. This is hard. And someone during that service got up and came to the front with the permission of the elders and delivered a prophecy that exactly described my situation that morning. And the prophecy told me, well, it told the person, it didn't mention my name, but it was clearly me, described my situation, and the prophecy told me to press on and to keep going and keep doing what I was doing, even though it would be difficult and challenging and costly. And it was so powerful. I broke down and wept in that moment because I instantly knew that was the Holy Spirit. But it was a huge encouragement to me. It didn't say, the Holy Spirit wasn't saying, I'm going to take away all those problems. He didn't say that to Paul either. I'm not comparing my life with Paul for one minute. But it was an encouragement to know that, yes, these problems are happening, but the Holy Spirit is in this, and he's calling you, and keep pressing on. And it helped me to press on with what I was doing for God. So whether we hear prophetic words or not, let's be those who are willing to press on, count the cost, and give all for Jesus, because he gave it all for us. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave it all for us on the cross. Help us, like the Apostle Paul, to be willing to give it all for you to lay down our lives for the cause of the gospel, for the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you'd move amongst us, that your spirit would be given freedom in this church and in our lives to speak to us prophetically, miraculously. Help us to be open to your spirit, to your voice, to your word in our lives. Help us to encourage one another, whether prophetically or not, that we might together press on 